Volume One, Chapter Ten of Diana Temple by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume One, Chapter Ten. Whoso would be a man must be a nonconformist. Emerson. John was eleven years old when, during a memorable Easter holidays, his father died, and lay in state in the round room in the western tower and was buried at midnight by torchlight in the little Norman church at Overley, as had been the custom of the Tempests from time immemorial. His father's death made very little difference to John, except that his holidays were spent with Miss Fane, an aunt in London, and Charles left to become a butler with a footman under him, and the other servants too seemed to melt away, leaving only Mitty and Mr. Parker and Mrs. Alcock in the old shuttered home. Mr. Goodwin was John's tutor during the holidays. It was he who saved John's life at the railway station, at the risk of his own. No one had been aware, till the accident happened, that John had been particularly attached to his tutor. He evidently got on with him, and was conveniently pleased with his society, but he had, to a peculiar degree, the stolid, indifferent manner of most schoolboys. He was absolutely undemonstrative and he tacitly resented his aunt's occasional demonstrative affection to himself. When will unmarried elder people learn that children are not to be deceived? John was very courteous, even as a boy, but his best friends could not say of him, at that or at any later period of his life, that he was engaging. He had through life a cold manner. No one had supposed what really was the case, namely, that he would have given his body to be burned, for the sake of the kind, cheerful young man who had taken an easy fancy to him on his arrival at school, and had subsequently become sufficiently fond of him to prefer being his tutor to that of any one else. He guessed John's absolute devotion to himself as little as any one. John's boyish thoughts and feelings and affections were of that shy yet fierce kind which shrink equally from expression and detection. No one had so far found them hard to deal with because no one had thought of dealing with them. Yet John sat for two days on the stairs outside the sick man's room, after the accident, unnoticed and unreprimanded. He was never seen to cry, but he was, nevertheless, almost unable to see out of his eyes. His aunt, Miss Fane, at whose house in London he was spending his Christmas holidays, had gone down to the country to nurse her sister, and the house was empty, but for the servants and the trained nurse. The doctor, who came several times a day, always found him sitting on the stairs, or appearing stealthily from an upper landing, working himself down by the balusters. He said very little, but the doctor seemed to understand the situation, and always had a kind and encouraging word for him, and gave him Mr. Goodwin's love, and took messages and offers of his best books from John to the invalid. But during those two long days he always had some excellent reason for John's not visiting his tutor. He was invariably at that moment tired, or asleep, or resting, or... A deep anxiety settled on John's mind. Something was being kept from him. Christmas Day came and passed. Mitty's present and a Christmas card from a friend, the Latin master's youngest daughter, came for John, but they were unopened. The next day brought three doctors who stayed a long time in the drawing-room after they had been in the sick-room. John sat on the stairs with clenched hands. 
At last he got up deliberately and went into the drawing-room. Two of the doctors were sitting down. One was standing on the hearth-rug, looking into the fire. "'It can't be done,' he was saying emphatically. "'Both must go.' All three men turned in surprise as John entered the room. He came up to the fire, unaware of the enormity of the crime he was committing in interrupting a consultation. He tried to speak. He got ready what he wished to ask. But his lips only moved. No words came out. The consultation was evidently finished, for the man on the hearth-rug, who seemed anxious to get away, was buttoning his fur coat and holding his hands to the fire for a last warm. They were very kind. They were not jockos with him, as is the horrible way of some elder persons with childhood's troubles. The old doctor who came daily put his hand on his shoulder and told him Mr. Goodwin had been very ill, but he was going to get better, going to be quite well and strong again presently. John said nothing. He was convinced there was something in the background. Twelve o'clock tomorrow, then,' said the man who was in a hurry, and he took up his hat and went out. "'I have two boys about the same age as you,' said the old doctor, patting John's shoulder. "'Tom and Edward. They're making a little model steam-engine. I expect you are fond of engines, aren't you?' "'Not just now, thank you,' said John. "'I am sometimes.' "'I wish you would come and see it to-morrow,' continued the doctor. "'They would like to show it to you, I know. "'I could send you back in the carriage when it has set me down here about—shall we say twelve? "'Do come and see it.' "'Thank you,' said John, almost inaudibly. "'You are very kind, but I am engaged.' Miss Fane always said she was engaged when she did not want to accept an invitation, and John supposed it was a polite way of saying he would rather not go. The other doctor laughed, but not unkindly, and the father of Tom and Edward absently drew on his gloves, as if turning over something in his mind. "'Have you seen the new lion and the birds that fly under water at the zoo?' he inquired slowly. "'And the snakes being fed?' "'No,' said John. "'Ah, that's the thing to see,' he said thoughtfully. "'Tom and Edward have been. Tell me how they enjoyed it they were at feeding time, midday.' And my nephew, Harry Austin, who is twenty-one and at college, went with them, and said he would have not missed it for anything. You go and see that with that nice young man who answers the bell. I will send you two tickets to-night. Thank you, said John. The two doctors shook hands with him and departed. You may as well keep your tickets, said the younger one as they went downstairs. He does not mean going. He is a queer little devil, said Tom's and Edward's father. But I like him. There's grit in him, and he watches outside that room like a dog. I wish I could have got him out of the house to-morrow, poor little beggar." John stood quite still in the middle of the long, empty drawing-room when they were gone. A nameless foreboding of some horrible calamity was upon him. And yet—and yet—they had said he was going to get better, to be quite strong again. He waylaid the trained nurse for the twentieth time, and she said the same. He suffered himself to be taken out for a walk, after hearing from her that Mr. Goodwin wished it, and in the afternoon he consented to go with George, Miss Fane's cheerful, good-natured young footman, to the Christian minstrels. But he lay awake all night, and in the morning after breakfast he crept noiselessly back to the stairs. It was a foggy morning, and the gas was lit. Jessie, the stout, silly housemaid, always in a perspiration or tears, 
was sweeping the landing just above him, sniffing audibly as she did so. "'Poor young gentleman,' she was saying below her breath to her colleague, "'I can't bear the thought of the operation. It seems to turn my inside clean upside down.' John clutched hold of the banisters. His heart gave one throb, and then stood quite still. "'Coleman says as both his hands must go,' said the other maid, also in a whisper. "'She told me herself. She says she's never seen such a case all her born days. They'd be trying all along to save one, but they can't. They're to be took off to-day.' John understood at last. He slipped downstairs again, and stood a moment in hesitation where to go, not to the little back room on the ground floor, which had been set apart for his use by his aunt. He might be found there. George might come in to see if he would fancy a game of battledore and shuttlecock, or the cook might step up with a little cake, or the butler himself might bring him a comic paper. The servants were always very kind, but he felt that he could not bear any kindness just now. He must be somewhere alone by himself. The drawing-room door was locked, but the key was on the outside. He turned it cautiously and went in. The room was dark and fiercely cold. Bands of yellow fog peered in over the tops of the shutters. The room had been prepared the day before for the consultation, but now it had returned to its former shuttered, muffled state. John took the key from the outside and locked himself in. Then he flung himself on his face onto one of the muffled settees and stuffed the dust-sheet into his mouth. Anything not to scream. A low, strangled cry was wrenched out of him. Another, and another, and another, but the dust-sheet told no tales. He dragged it down with him onto the floor, and bit into the wet, cobwebby material. And by degrees the paroxysm passed. The power to keep silence returned. At last John sat up and looked round him, breathing hard. A clock ticked in the darkness, and presently struck a single chime. Half-past something, half-past eleven it must be, and they were coming at twelve. Was there no help? "'God,' said John suddenly, in a low, distinct voice in the darkness, "'do something. If you don't stop it, nobody else will. You know you can, if you like. You divided the Red Sea. Remember all your plagues. Oh, God, God, make something happen. There's half an hour still. Think of him.' both hands, and all the clever books he was going to write, and all the things he was going to do. Oh, God! God, and such a cricketer!" There was a short silence. John felt absolutely certain God would answer. He waited a long time, but no one spoke. The fog deepened outside. The quarter struck faintly from the church in the next street. "'I give up one hand,' said John stretching out both of his. I only ask for one now. Let him keep one, the other one. He's so clever. He could soon learn to write with his left, and perhaps hooks don't hurt after the first. Oh, God! I dare say he could manage with one. But not both, not both. John repeated the last words over and over again in an agony of supplication. He would make God hear. It was growing very dark. The link boys were crying in the streets. A carriage stopped at the door. Oh, God, they're coming! Not both! Not both! 
gasped John, and the sweat broke from his forehead. Two more carriages, lowered voices in the passage, and quiet footfalls going upstairs. John prayed without ceasing. The house had become very silent. At last the silence awed him, and an overmastering longing to know seized upon him. He stole out of the drawing-room and sped swiftly upstairs. On the landing opposite Mr. Goodwin's room the butler was standing, listening. Everything was quite still. John could hear the gas burning. There was a can of hot water just outside the door. The steam curled upwards out of the spout. As he reached the landing the door was softly opened, and the nurse raised the heavy can and lifted it into the room. Through the open door came a hoarse, inarticulate sound, which seemed to pierce into John's brain. "'Courage!' said a gentle voice, and the door was closed again. The butler breathed heavily, and there was a whimper from the upper landing. Trembling from head to foot, John fled down the stairs again, unperceived, into the drawing-room, and crouched down on the floor near the open door, turning his face to the wall. Every now and then a strong shudder passed over him, and he beat his little black head dumbly against the wall. But he did not move, until at last the doctors came down. He let the first two pass, he could not speak to them, and it was a long time before the father of Tom and Edward appeared. John came suddenly out upon him at the turn of the stairs. "'Is it both?' he said, clutching his coat. "'Both what, my boy?' said the doctor, puzzled by the sudden onslaught, and looking down at the blackened, convulsed face and shaggy hair. "'Both hands!' The doctor hesitated. "'Yes,' he said gravely. "'I am grieved to say it is.' John flung up his arms. "'I will never pray to God again as long as I live,' he said passionately. "'John!' said the doctor sternly, and then suddenly putting out his hand to catch him as he reeled backwards. "'What good gracious the child has fainted!' John went back to school before the holidays were over, for Miss Fane on her return found it difficult to know what to do with him. Mr. Goodwin came back no more. He slowly regained a certain degree of health, a ruined man, without private means, at seven-and-twenty. John wrote constantly to him, and wrote also long, urgent letters in a large, cramped hand to his trustees. And something inadequate was done. When he came of age his first action was to alter that something, and to induce Mr. Goodwin and the sister who lived with him to take up their abode in the chaplain's house in the park at Overley where they had now been established nearly seven years. Whether John's was an affectionate nature or not, it would be hard to say. For affection had so far intermeddled little with his life, but he had a kind of faithfulness, and a memory of the heart as well as of the head. John never forgot a kindness, never wholly forgot an injury. He might forgive one, for he showed as he grew towards man's estate and passed through the various vicissitudes of school and college life, a certain stern generosity of temper, and contempt for small retaliations. He was certainly not revengeful, but he remembered. His mind was as tenacious of impression as engraved steel. That very tenacity of impression had given Mr. Goodwin an unbounded influence over him in his early youth. John had believed absolutely in Mr. Goodwin, 
and Mr. Goobin, hurried by a bitter short cut of suffering from youth to responsible middle age, had devoted himself with the religious fervour of entire self-abnegation to the boy for whom he had risked his life. John's intense attachment to him had, after his recovery, come as a surprise to him, yoked with a sense of responsibility. For to be loved in any fashion is to incur a great responsibility. Mr. Goodwin acted according to his lights. But the good intentions of others cannot pave the way to heaven for us. In the manner of many well-meaning teachers, Mr. Goodwin used his influence over John to impress upon him the stamp of his own narrow religious convictions. He honestly believed it was the best thing he could do for the young, strong, earnest nature which sat at his feet. But John did not sit long. Mr. Goodman was aghast at the way in which the little chains and check-strings of his scheme of salvation were snapped like thread when John began to rise to his feet. An influence misused, if once shaken, is lost for ever. John went away like a young Samson, taking the poor weaver's inadequate beam with him, and never came back. Mr. Goodwin's teaching had done its work. John never leaned again on one mind overmuch. Mr. Goodwin pushed him early into scepticism, into which narrow teaching pushes all independent natures, and regarded his success with bitter disappointment. John left him, and Mr. Goodwin's office others took. Mr. Goodwin suffered horribly. John had not, of course, reached seven-and-twenty without passing through many phases, each more painful to Mr. Goodwin than the last. He had spoken fiercely at Oxford on one occasion in favour of community of goods, to the surprise and amusement of his friends, and on one other single occasion in support of the philosophy of Kant, with which he did not agree, but whose side he could not bear to see inefficiently taken up only for the sake of refutation. When the spirit moved him, John could be suddenly eloquent, but the spirit very seldom did. As a rule he saw both sides with equal clearness, and could be forced into partnership on neither. Those who expected he would make a brilliant speaker in the House of Commons would probably be disappointed in him. It was remarkable, considering he had apparently no special talent or aptitude for any one line of study, and had never particularly distinguished himself either at school or college, that nevertheless he had unconsciously raised in the minds of those who knew him best, and many who did not know him at all, a more or less vague expectation that he would make his mark, that in some fashion or other he would come to the fore. The abilities of persons with square jaws are usually taken for granted by the crowd and certainly John's was square enough to suggest any amount of reserved force. But general expectation rarely falls on those who have sufficient strength not only to resist its baneful influence, but also to realise its hopes. The effect of the expectation of others on many minds is to draw into greater activity that personal conceit which, once indulged, saps the roots of individual life and gradually vitiates the powers. Conceit is only mediocrity in the bud. Like a blight in spring it stunts the autumn fruit. On some natures again, the expectation of others acts as a stimulus, the force of which is quite incalculable. 
It spurs unnatural humility into fixed resolution and self-reliance, turns sloth into energy, earnestness into action, and goads diffidence up the hills of achievement. It has been truly said that those who trust us educate us. Perhaps it might be added that those who believe in us make or destroy us. If John, who was perfectly aware of the enthusiastic or grudging expectations that others had formed of him, had not as yet fallen into either of these two extremes, it was probably because what others might happen to think or not think concerning him was of little moment to him, and had no power to sway him either way. The thing of all others that puzzled John Staunch's adherents was their inability to fix him in any one set of opinions, social, political, or religious. Many after Mr. Goodwin tried and failed. For John's great wealth and position, besides the native force of character of which even as a very young man he gave signs, and an openness of mind which encouraged what it ought to have disheartened proselytism, all these attributes have made him an object of interest and importance which would have ruined a more self-conscious man. As it was, he listened, got to the bottom of the subject, whatever it might be, never left it till he had probed to the uttermost, and then went his way. He marched out of every mental prison he could be temporarily lured into. He would go boldly into any that interested him, but locks and bars would not hold him directly he did not wish to stay there any longer. Mr. Goodwin hoped against hope that John would see the error of his ways and come back, that, according to his mode of expressing himself, the pride of the intellect might be broken, and John might one day be moved to return from the desert and husks and the philosophy of free thought to his father's home. He said something of the kind one day to John, and was astonished at the sudden flame that leapt into the young man's eyes as he silently took up his hat and went out. The one thing of all others which the Mr. Goodwins of this world are incapable of discerning is that to leave an outgrown form of faith is in itself an act of faith almost beyond the strength of shrinking human frailty. To bury a dead belief is hard. They regard it invariably as a voluntary desertion, not of their form of religion, but of a religion itself for private ends, or from a sense of irksomeness. Mr. Goodwin had reproachfully suggested that John had got into a bad set at Oxford, and was in the habit of mixing in doubtful society in London. Those whose surroundings have moulded them attribute all mental changes in others to a superficial and generally an entirely inadequate influence such as would have had little power to affect themselves. John left the house white with anger. He had been anxious and humble half an hour before, he listened, sadly enough, to Mr. Goodwin's counsels, the old, old counsels that fortunately always come too late, that are worse than none, because they appeal to motives of self-interest, safety, peace of mind, etc., the pharisaical reasoning that what has been good enough for our fathers is good enough for us. But now his anger was fierce against his teacher, who was so quick to believe evil of any development not of his own fostering. He calls good evil, and evil good, he said to himself. It seems to me I've only got to lose hold of the best in me, and lead a cheap, goody-goody sort of life, and I shall please everybody all round, Mr. Goodwin included. 
He wants me to remain a child always. He would break my mind to pieces now if he could, and would offer up the little bits to God. He thinks the voice of God in the heart is a temptation of the devil. I will not silence it and crush it down as he wants me to. I will love, honour, and cherish it from this day forward, for better for worse, for richer for poorer, in sickness and in health. There seems to be in life a call which comes to a few only, who, like the young man of the gospel, have great possessions. From youth up the life may have been carefully lived in certain well-worn grooves traced by the finger of God, grooves in which many are allowed to pass their whole existence. But to some among those many, to some few with great mental possessions, the voice comes sooner or later, Forsake all, leave all, and follow me. How many turn away sorrowful? They cannot believe in the New Testament of the present day. They ponder instead what God whispered eighteen hundred years ago in the ear of a listening son, but they shrink from recognizing the same voice speaking in their hearts now, completing all that has gone before. And so the point of life is missed. The individual life, namely the life of Christ, obedient not to Scripture, but to the giver of the Scripture, is not lived. The life Christ lived, at variance with the recognised faiths and fashionable opinions of the day, at variance just because it did not conform to a dead ritual, just because it was obedient throughout to a personal prompting, that life is not more tolerated today than it was eighteen hundred years ago. The Church will have none of it, treats the first spark of it as an infidelity to Christ himself. Against every young and ardent listening and questioning soul, the Church and the world combine, as in our Lord's day, to crucify once again the Christ. Life which is not of their kindling, which is indeed an infidelity, but an infidelity only to them. So the crucifix is raised high. The sign of our great rejection of him is deified. The Mediator, the Saviour, the Redeemer is honoured. The instrument of his death is honoured, but the thought for the sake of which he was content to stretch his nailed hands upon it, his thought, is without honour. Poor Mr. Goodwin, poor John. Affection had to struggle along as best as it could as the years widened the gulf between them, and was reduced to find a meagre subsistence in cordial words and sympathy for neuralgia on John's part an interest in John's shooting and hunting on Mr. Goodwin's. Affectionate and easy terms were gradually re-established between them, and a guarded sympathy on general subjects returned. But Mr. Goodwin knew that, from being the friend of the inner, he had become only the companion of the outer life of the person he cared for most in the world, and the ways of providence appeared to him inscrutable. And now Mr. Goodwin understood John even less at seven-and-twenty than at twenty-one. The conception of the possibility of a mind that, after being strongly influenced by a succession of the most dangerous teachers and books, gives final allegiance to none, and can at last elect to stand alone, was impossible to Mr. Goodwin. And yet John arrived at that simple and natural result, of which those who have sincerely and humbly searched for a law and an authority outside themselves do arrive. An external authority is soon seen to be too good to be true. 
There is no court of appeal against the verdict of the inexorable judge who dwells within. How many rush hither and thither, and wear down the patience of earnest counsellors, and whittle away all the best years of their lives to nothingness, in fretting and scratching among ruins, for the law by which they may live. They look for it in Bibles, in the minds of anxious friends, who turn everything to help them, in the face of nature, who betrays the knowledge of the secrets in her eyes, but who utters it not. And last of all, a remnant of the many, look in their own hearts, where the great law of life has been hidden from the beginning. David says, Yea, thy law is within my heart. A greater than David said the same. But it is buried deep, and few there be that find it. End of chapter 10